you for downloading the Two Cities Church podcast, where we are pushing back darkness by spreading the good news of King Jesus. And now, here is this week's message from Pastor Jeff Struker. Thanks, Troy. I want you to do something for me just right out of the gate at home or in this room. Why don't you reach up and put your hands over your eyes like something bad is about to happen and you're going to try to block it out. Go ahead and do this for me right now. Does this remind you of something? Thank you. You can stop right now, especially at home because there's no way you can see me if you do that. But does this remind you of childhood when mom or dad knew something bad was about to happen on TV and then they reached up real quick and they put their hands in front of your eyes because they didn't want you to see something bad? They didn't want you to have nightmares about something that you were about to see on TV? I used to do this when I was a teenager because I really got into scary movies. And so I used to come home from work late in the evening. I would turn all the lights off. I would put a scary movie on and I would do my best in the house by myself to watch a scary movie all the way through for the first time by myself. And inevitably for a moment or two, I'd put my eyes up to try to make what's scary on the movie go away. And then it dawned on me. Well, just because you put your hands over your eyes doesn't mean what, is, uh, what was about to happen didn't happen, right? You guys probably figured that out a lot sooner than I did. Well, I'm using this hands over your eyes kind of thing to remind us, you know, sometimes people carry that analogy even into adulthood. Because what they do is they kind of put their hands over their eyes when something that they don't want to face is about to come in front of them. And I just need to remind all of us, I think I need to be reminded of this from time to time. You can see it right here on the screens. Just because you put your hands over your eyes, it doesn't make the hard stuff. It doesn't make the difficult stuff. And it also doesn't make the truth go away. And what we're going to see in the Bible today is a group of men who are going to cover their own eyes, almost physically, they're spiritually going to cover their eyes up because it's really inconvenient to face the truth of what just happened in front of them. So if you are just joining us for the first time, we're studying through the Gospel of John. And previously in the Gospel of John, last week, we were introduced to a guy who was physically blind. We learned that this guy was born blind, and Jesus' disciples, probably the people in the community, definitely the religious leaders believed, if you're born blind, somebody did something wrong, and blindness is the result of sin. So who sinned? Jesus, was it his mama and daddy? Is that why he was born blind? Or did this baby sin while he was still in the womb? And Jesus gives a profound answer. He said, It wasn't mama and daddy or the baby. He was born blind so that this moment would happen in front of you. And then you would be able to see. Notice, not just the blind man would be able to see, but you'd be able to see the power of God. Because in Jesus' day, they believed that if you were born blind, physically blind, even God himself couldn't heal you. So Jesus does a miracle And he heals a guy that was born physically blind. And now this guy stands in front of the religious leaders who are spiritually blind. And they are struggling to explain away what just happened. They're really spiritually putting their hands over their eyes and trying to make the truth go away. Because they don't want to reckon with the implications 
of a guy who was born blind has just been healed by this rabbi in our community. So today, we're going to end the last part of this story, and we're going to deal with spiritual blindness instead of physical blindness. I'm just going to tell you, today in the Bible, we're going to tackle perhaps one of, if not the greatest theological challenge in the entire Bible, because the Bible just puts it in front of us in very matter-of-fact terms. So here's what I want you to see first. We're going to start in the book of John. We're going to be in John chapter 9, starting in verse 35 in just a second. And I am shamelessly using one of the most famous uh, worship or hymn lyrics of all times on the screen right now. The famous slave trader born in British England in the mid-1700s, John Newton, who had this radical experience with Jesus. And Jesus not only changed his life, uh, not only changed his soul, but changed his life. And this former slave trader became a outspoken abolitionist and spoke against the slave trade when his eyes were opened. He wrote the famous hymn, John Newton wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. And in that hymn, we've sung, I once was blind, but now I see. You have some guys, you have a guy who was born blind, but now sees. And now we deal with the guys in the community who were born with eyesight, but maybe they've never been able to see. Maybe they can't see anymore. So here's how the story picks up for us. John chapter 9, starting in verse 35. When or Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out, and he went and found him. Now, the man that we're referring to is the man that was born blind who just stood in front of the religious leaders, and they got so angry with him. Thrown out means they kicked him out of church, literally excommunicated him out of church just because he had the audacity to claim that this man from Galilee was a prophet. He claimed that Jesus must be a prophet because of what he just did when he opened my eyes. So Jesus deliberately goes to find this brother and to ask him a question. He asked, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? He asked and Jesus answered, you have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said. And then he worshiped Jesus. The conversation that we're having right now really causes me to ask the question. And maybe when you read the book of John, you're asking the same question. When exactly did this man see Jesus? No, see who Jesus really was. Because the first conversation that he had, he was born blind, couldn't see. Jesus does this miracle, sends him away. When he goes away to wash, his eyes are open. And he gets in a conversation with these religious leaders who absolutely refuse to believe that Jesus is a holy man. And so there's an argument between the man born blind and the religious leaders. And they kick him out of church and Jesus goes out of his way. By the way, the Bible is using language here that says Jesus went out of his way and took deliberate time to go back and to find this guy. That almost never happens, so I kind of wonder, what is it about this guy that prompts Jesus to go back to him and to find him? 
And I really think it's because people in town are talking about the fact that he was willing to stand up to the religious leaders. Probably Jesus went to find him because he had the courage to confront the truth or the, the truth and didn't necessarily believe in those religious rules and all of those traditions because he had just been changed so much by Jesus. So Jesus goes out of his way to find him. And when he shows up, he asks a very simple question. And I said this when we first started through studying through the, the book of John. This book in the Bible is referred to by most as some of the easiest reading in the Bible. And it's true. Because Jesus asks him just a very natural, very simple, very easy to understand question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? The guy's answer is important. But Jesus' response is profound. And basically, here's what I want you to hear, church. John is no lightweight. He's dealing with some incredibly big theological topics today. And he's just using some of the most natural, easy-to-read language. Jesus says, hey, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the guy says, I don't know. Where is he? Who is he? So that I can believe in him. At this point, yes or no, does this guy, is this man able to see spiritually? When Jesus shows up and asks him, do you believe? Okay, it's not a trick question, y'all. It's a yes or no question. Do you think he can see? He's still struggling to see who's standing right in front of him until Jesus pulls back the blinders on his soul now and starts to introduce him at the soul level. Yeah, he's already healed the man physically, but now he's about to open his eyes spiritually. The guy says, I don't know who the Son of Man is. Like, show him to me so that I can believe in him. And Jesus' answer says, hey, it's, it's actually this kind of language. You've seen him. You're, he's standing in front of you right now, and you're going to keep seeing him. And now you can see him both body and soul. You can see with your physical eyes, but now you get a chance to see him with your spiritual eyes as well. And when Jesus reveals himself to this guy, the guy is now confronted with a choice, a challenge that's placed in front of him. And the guy believes and the Bible tells us that he worshiped. And when the Bible uses the worshiped word, it's using the exact same word as this notorious town center, the woman at the well, who is the most outcast, the most scandalous woman in town. And when she sees with her soul who's standing in front of her, when Jesus opens her eyes, she worships him. This Samaritan woman worships him just like this guy worshiped Jesus. When he finally can see with the soul, not with just the eyes who's standing in front of him. This choice that Jesus is putting in front of him is the same choice that every human being on the planet has to decide. It's a choice of what do you believe about Jesus? Will you worship him, not just as the son of man, not just as the son of God, but he makes it very clear in the Bible, as God the son, will you fall down with spiritual eyes to see Jesus as God the Son. And I just want to tell you what I think the Bible is dealing with today is an issue of the first commandment. See, when you get the first commandment right, 
all of the other commandments fall into place. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, God says, hey, Israel, I delivered you out of Egypt, and now I'm going to give you some rules. First rule, Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You will have no other gods in front of me. Don't you dare worship anyone or anything else but me. You can't get number one right. The rest of the nine are not going to happen for you. If you can figure number one out, when you get number one right, the other nine are possible. But until you get number one right, the other nine are not going to work out for you. I have this pet peeve, by the way. When Christians use the word worship as kind of a synonym for singing songs in church on Sunday, and that's all the word means to them, you've really cheapened the word. Because what this guy does without singing songs is fall down on his knees in the presence of Jesus and believe he is the son of God and worship him, meaning surrender his life to him. And that word worship is used in the Old Testament. It most often refers to the Old Testament saints of God falling down in front of him and surrendering their life. Yes, it means singing songs on Sunday, but it means much, much more than that. It's a life radically surrendered to the God who created you in the first place. And Jesus is putting a choice in front of this guy. I'm standing in front of you, and you have to decide, do you believe that I am the, son, the promised one of God or not? The same choice all of us have to make. I was running this week. I, I was up early this week to work out, and I had a choice to make. I have a whole lot of stuff that I, would, I have been falling behind on, and I needed to catch up with a lot of work that needed to get done, but I also wanted to go do a long run. I try to run long distances once or twice every week, once during the week and once on the weekends. And so I really want to do this long run, but I also know that if I cut my run short, I can get to work an hour earlier, and I can get an hour's worth of work done. And I'm just going to admit it to you. I cut the run short this week, not because of the temperatures, not because I'm being lazy. I cut the run short this week so that I could get to work and get an extra hour's worth of work done. And you know what? When I was driving to work, here's what I was thinking. I had a choice to make. I can't be at work and be running long distance at the same time. I'm not smart enough to figure that one out. But if I keep cheating my fitness for the sake of getting work done, at some point, my fitness will get so out of shape that I'm no longer able to get work done. So in other words, choosing to cheat when you're forced to make a choice it's the wrong choice. And this week, when I have the opportunity to run long distance or to get some work done, I, I know I got to get out and I got to run long distance or else I'm not going to be able to get the work done that I want to sometime in the future. I think this choice that God is placing in front of this man, he places in front of every human being. Do you believe that this really is the promised one of God who can open your eyes both physically and spiritually or not. And now that you've been forced to make that choice, now you have to reckon with God's part in this equation. You see, we have to really ask the question, is spiritual blindness, when somebody can't see with their soul, is that their fault or is that God's fault? And maybe you don't think about it in these terms, but I do. 
See, what the Bible is going to do next, these last three verses from the book of John chapter 9, really put the whole passage into perspective. In fact, the great preacher and pastor, the author of the book Desiring God, John Piper, he basically said these last three verses are the apex or the climax of the whole story. In these last three verses, the guy who was born blind and can't see can now see more clearly. But the people who were born with eyesight can now see less clearly. Because this is the theological challenge that Jesus is going to put in front of us that we have to wrestle with. Whose fault is it when people are really spiritually blind? Here's how the chapter ends. Jesus said to the guy, I have come into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do see will become blind. Pause for just a second. If you're in the habit of circling or writing in your Bible, circle the word become. It's a very important word in this passage. And some of the Pharisees, these religious leaders that are supposed to be the most spiritual people in the whole land, some of these Pharisees who were with him heard these things and they asked him, we aren't blind too, are we? In other words, they knew Jesus was directing these words at them. If you were blind, listen to Jesus' Jesus's reply. If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. And what Jesus is doing in these last couple of verses is dealing with the source of spiritual blindness. Physical blindness, lots of, lots of reasons for that. Spiritual blindness, we have to ask the question, is it God's fault or is it my fault that I'm spiritually blind? Jesus says, I, I came to judge the world. And what I want you to wrestle with for just a second, can we just be honest with the Bible for a moment? I want you to wrestle with the statement when Jesus says, you're spiritually blind, but I've come to judge you for your blindness. Because if you're honest with the Bible, you would have to ask, wait a second, how can, ju- how can God judge me for being blind and not being able to spiritually see? And Jesus is saying, look, you're spiritually blind, and I've come to judge you because you're spiritually blind. And it's one thing to be born blind. This guy who he just opened his eyes are born blind. Now he's talking to the religious leaders. And he's saying, you guys weren't born spiritually blind. You became spiritually blind. You see that from the passage, right? And in this story, Jesus is saying, you chose not to see who I really am and what I came to do because it's covering your eyes to the truth. If you were forced to see who I am and what I came to do to change the soul of mankind, you're now going to be forced to deal with your religious rules and your traditions. Because you don't want to give up those religious rules and those traditions, you cannot see who I really am. I'll give you an example of this. Go back sometime in the next day or two and go read Matthew chapter 13. Read the whole chapter. It'll only take you three minutes. Jesus uses one parable after another after another in Matthew chapter 13. 
And he speaks in parables, which, by the way, are kind of figurative language instead of very concrete stories. And he's using so many parables, Matthew chapter 13, that his disciples start to get a little bit confused. I think they're actually getting frustrated. Like, Jesus, I don't get it. Why are you talking in parables when people are trying to understand who you are and what you came to teach? And Jesus' answer is profound. He said, I'm speaking in parables, Matthew 13. So that those that can't see, won't see. So that those who can't hear, won't hear. He's basically saying, so that the spiritually blind will stay spiritually blind. So that the spiritually deaf will remain spiritually deaf. Boom, the disciples don't get it. So Matthew 13 ends with Jesus going back to his hometown. And he preaches in his hometown in the synagogue. And what Matthew 13 tells us is that when people saw this man in the synagogue, they could not see the Son of God. They definitely could not see God the Son. All they could see was the son of Joseph and Mary. And for them, they were spiritually blind, and there was no way that they could understand, there was no way that they could recognize who this guy really is because all they could see is the kid that they remember growing up on the streets with. And Jesus, the Bible tells us at the end of Matthew 13, Jesus couldn't do many miracles in their midst, and most of them didn't see, couldn't believe who he really was because they were spiritually blind. And it was going to challenge what they believed about the world, about religion, about themselves. So now what I want to do is just deal with this very honest statement that Jesus makes. I'll go back to it and put it back on the screens for you for just a second. Jesus says... I I came so that people that were blind basically would remain blind, Matthew 13. In this passage, he says, I came to judge the world in in, in order that those who do not see will see, and those who do see will become blind. And I want to ask, okay, Jesus, are you saying that you showed up so that people would be left in their sin after they've heard your story? And they would be guilty of that sin. Is that what you're telling us? Because the religious leaders ask him, I think you're talking about us, Jesus. Are you telling us that we're blind? And his answer to them is, if you could see your need to see, then you wouldn't be blind. But because you can't see your need to see, you're blind and you're hopelessly blind. In fact, I said it this way last week. Go back and watch last week's sermon. I said, all of us are blind to our blindness until something, actually, until someone shows us our spiritual blindness. And here's what I think the Bible is dealing with right now. It's dealing with this theological challenge. I don't think that there's a conundrum or a conflict here. But it's dealing with a theological challenge of God at work in a man or a woman's soul and a man or a woman's responsibility to respond to God at work in a man or a woman's soul. Not the man that was born blind, the Pharisees. So maybe you've heard it this way, the Bible doctrine of election or the Bible doctrine of predestination. There are many preachers out there, many theologians out there that really struggle with this one. And I think they give some bad information to try to help 
bring into light these two challenges of God being absolutely sovereign in every aspect of our life, but we still have a responsibility to respond to him. So just humor me for a second. Say the word and out loud. Go ahead. Now say the word or out loud. Where preachers and theologians go wrong is when they take these two topics, God being so powerful and so um, in control that he's in control of every aspect of human uh, life to include your soul and man's responsibility to respond to God's call for salvation. When preachers use the word or, when theologians introduce the word or in these two concepts, they're not treating the Bible fairly. You see, what you have in the Bible is God totally in control of everything and man and woman responsible to respond. And if you're asking me, Jeff, how exactly do those two things work together? I have no idea. In fact, I have studied it at the highest levels for more than 20 years. I have read the most brilliant minds in Christian history on this and have yet to find anybody who's able to conclusively figure out how these two things are both true at the same time. But many credible church leaders and theologians will tell you it's absolutely clear from the Bible. They're both right there. It's always and. It's never or. Please hear me, church. I'm going through this theological discussion with you because when you hear a pastor start to use the word or instead of and, maybe they just don't understand the Bible. That's dangerous or worse. Maybe they're deliberately trying to distort what the Bible teaches to make it a little bit more palatable. What Jesus is saying today is God is absolutely sovereign and he and he alone can show you that you're blind and that you need his help to see. But when God shows you that, now you and I have a responsibility to respond. It's and, it's both at the same time. Maybe somebody has been watching this broadcast today and maybe somebody is realizing, "Uh uh-oh, I'm spiritually blind. And I can't fix spiritual blindness. In fact, I think I see my need to see for the first time. And so, God, I need you to open my heart. I need you to open my soul. I sometimes use this language. I need you to cause my soul to live or to my heart, my spiritual heart to start beating for the first time. God, I need you to do that to show me how to respond to you in faith. If that's you, in just a second... We hope you enjoyed this message. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and to stay in touch by joining our email list through the link in the show notes. Have a great week.